Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and Happy New Year. I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of 2023 with New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. And I am, of course, your host, Shobhana Xavier. In today's episode, we are joined by Afsar Muhammad, who is a professor of South Asian Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Afsar is also a well-renowned Telugu poet, and his Evening with the Sufi, which is published by Red River Press in 2022, is a collection of translated poems from Telugu to English. The poems themselves were translated from English um, by Afsar Muhammad and Shamala Gallagher, and they are a selection of stunning poetry that capture the stark realities of religious landscape of rural South India, set against the backdrop of the barren panorama of village life that is reeling from political and social friction. The poems evoke Sufi saints and motherly figures or ammas, uh, but also strikes the readers with themes of exile and yearning for homeland. This is both physical but also metaphysical. The poems are also followed by reflections on translation by Shamala Gallagher, an interview with the author, and two essays by David Shulman and Charan Rudramuthi. This beautiful collection of poetry will be of interest to scholars who work on South Asian Islam and Sufism and those who think through translation theory, especially from a Telugu context, but I think broadly from any South Asian or any translation process. And I think because the poems are so beautiful, I this is a, would be of general interest to, to readers who are maybe drawn to South Asian poetry or Sufi poetry. So it could be a great gift um, if you're think, looking for one. In our conversation today, Afsar and I spoke about some of the context for his poems, um, his own biographical uh, journey from navigating being a scholar and a poet, um, some of the themes and um, you know landscapes that his poems evoke, especially around the rural landscape or the village life, along with Sufi imagery, as well as some of the challenges of translation um, and much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Afsar Muhammad about his new collection of poems that are translated from Telugu to English, An Evening with a Sufi. Hi, Afsar. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you, Shobhana. So good uh, to see you. And uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm a huge fan of your work, obviously, because of interest in South Asia and Sufism and read a lot of your scholarship. But I'm really excited to have a conversation about your book of poetry that's just come out, Evening with the Sufi, Selected Poems. Um, and so it's translated from Telugu by yourself and also um, Shamala Gallagher. So I wonder, before we get into the poems and talk about the collection a little bit, if you could tell us a little bit about who you are to our audience who may not know of your scholarship. So what's your intellectual journey and um, what have you been doing so far? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Shravana, for that question. Actually, uh, this is going to take me back to my village, uh, where actually I started studying about Sufism and popular Islam. It's not like a scholarly approach. Uh, it's very like everyday aspect because uh, Sufism and uh, popular Islam were like part of everyday life in this village and um, actually I, it's not easy to come back when I start talking about my village uh, because I'm still like uh, whenever I read some stuff about Sufism in general and uh, Islam and its different manifestations in public culture I actually takes me back to my village and then I always like bring examples from that village. So this is actually very like uh, interesting kind of uh, uh, approach for me because when I was in school, I never thought of this kind of dimension. I was just, okay, we used to go to these Sufi shrines and then we have this um, Karbala Maidan where the martyrs of Karbala, you know, they are remembered and they, they used to take out processions 
during the 10 day mohram um uh, but so these are kind of like I, I i never had an idea about what is this stuff and then how how this is connected to this village and then how why people like uh despite uh different religious backgrounds and then caste histories why do they worship these sufi saints and karbala martyrs it's kind of very kind of interesting and then also like uh this kind of interesting dimension <laughs> because my family basically they are leftist family so they're like active members of the communist party of india at the same time <laughs> they were also like uh, very like uh, religious mm -hmm. so kind of there is a challenge to my idea of religious identity versus secular identity so so it's kind of the beginnings itself like uh like a lot of questions right so that is basically like it's the, the, everything comes from these everyday conversations with people mm -hmm. my family and then the communities in this village and then i later i kind of uh, when i started reading about various uh, social theories and um, I trained in anthropology and um, when started uh, talking about all this <laughs> terminology related to cultural studies, okay, okay, there is something here. And then uh, I, I, I know all this stuff from my own village. <laughs> so mm -hmm. then I started relating everything. So I started connecting everything and then that actually this journey started with poetry, not like my theoretical studies or sociological approach. It's very, very kind of simple understanding of uh, Sufism and popular Islam. Mm. Did you always keep both of them together? You say that poetry came first. You're also an academic and a professor and you exist in this Western academic sphere. Were there moments as you're you know, going through your scholarly and academic life, but also poetic life where you had to compartmentalize one or did they always kind of grow together um, and develop together for you? It's always like a question that I ask myself every day. And then my friends, because they know me, just as a poet and short fiction writer yeah. they don't know anything about my this kind of work uh even though uh, the festival of Peace also like uh, uh popular in south asian like uh, universities mm -hmm. academic circles uh it's also it's a very new thing mm -hmm. for all, all my friends and then particularly for my childhood friends so everything like so they make a clear compartmentalization <laughs> about me being a poet and an academician. But in my world, they are also they are always overlapping. Mm -hmm. So even in my like uh, studies too, scholarly studies too, I try to bring examples from poetic narratives and then metaphorization of this everyday life. So there is, that's a very kind of, uh, but it, it kind of helped me as a poet and also like a teacher. So um, if you if a, if you are a teacher just focusing on theory and not talking about everyday life, you are missing so much there, right? But if you are a teacher who could connect everyday conversations and theoretical approaches, it's, it's very quite interesting for students to see how this entire thing works out on a daily basis. So that, that way, I think it is very connect, totally connected world. And then also, even though I teach uh, courses on religion, I always use literary materials. I actually begin every course with a poem or short story. So that helps me to like uh, to bring this creative personality into the classroom and then uh, engage with the students uh, with a very simple kind of uh, material rather than like uh, <laughs> uh, big things. 
Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And partly because I engage with your work, Festival Peers, so much, and I cite it all the time. Reading this book of poems is also like really fascinating because I did feel like it was you're talking about the same things, but you're exploring them in very different ways. So the idea of Sufi themes, of Sufi shrines, of the context of, of village life in South Asia. There's also, um, as you mentioned in your own story, of the, the political context, so post-partition. India in 1948. So there's just something that you're able to do with imagery um, that you're able to bring out rituals, which is kind of the work that you're doing your scholarly work anyway. But I think the dimensions in which poetry allows you to explore that is just kind of such so beautiful. Um, so I do think that there is like a synchronicity across the board, but I could, I, you know, when I picked up the book, I knew you as this person who wrote this amazing book. And then so I was getting to know you in this other way, which I really am grateful for. So that's what I was kind of curious about how you thought of yourself in that way. Um, so what, so you've obviously written a lot of Telugu poems. I read in the book that there, you have over 500 poems, you write um, short stories. Um, mm -hmm. So you have this other dimension um, aspect of your, of your life as, you know, as a poet and as an artist. Um, are these the first poems that have been translated into English from my end? Is, is that correct? Or are there have been others? And why this this collection of poems and these at this moment? Like what led to this particular edited book, um, you know, evening with the Sufi? Oh, uh, great. Yeah, actually, uh, they were translated before. But uh, in a book form, this is the first thing. Ah, okay. So they kind of, uh, actually I started uh, when I uh, writing poetry when I was in high school. So my first poem pub was published in when I was in 11th grade. And then, <laughs> and then immediately because of the freshness and then new imagery and symbolism, because I am coming from this very distinctive background and then this bilingual culture, like a uh, Telugu and Urdu, and then this uh, multi-religious context, because I actually um, uh, read so much about Hinduism, even when I was in high school, and then Islam, because my mom was like very particular about finishing the Quran by my 11th year. So I finished my Quran by my 11th year, and then like started learning Arabic with her and on the other hand <laughs> so my father was like encouraging me to read more Marxian philosophy because he was like a very like staunch <laughs> communist party activist and then I had this like uh, I would say it's like a wonderful blend of so many things <laughs> and then village itself actually taught me so much because this village uh, still, even now, it is known for its folk uh, performances. You can see every cultural performance in this village. Mm -hmm. Even after all this, like, uh, digital uh, and electronic kind of world, you still see that morality is a powerful a medium here. So... That way, I think uh, I think I am responding to your question properly. Um, so basically, what I am trying to see is a is a kind of a, the way. After all these years, because uh, when I started writing in Telugu, but actually I published first in English, not in Telugu. So Telugu is like much later. So I published poetry in English, uh, like uh, very well-known magazines such as Illustrated Weekly of India, edited by Pratish Nandi, <laughs> then uh, The Mirror, edited by Prabha Govind. And uh, so they, I was in just 11th grade and then Pratish Nandi asked me to, oh yeah, you should write more poems <laughs> in English. And then I don't know what happened. And then when I like um, was in undergrad was in a I, I kind of english studies major so then uh and reading so much english poetry i kind of felt like okay why should i write in english <laughs> but then i switched it to telugu again and then started writing in telugu 
but uh, so that journey is still like a bilingual journey uh, so translations actually like uh, most of the translations because uh, translation is very big activity in telugu uh, so particularly like uh, telugu to english and english to telugu there's a lot of uh, dialogue uh, between these two languages and uh, so as soon as i published a poem since they look like uh, very new so i have like so many translations then mm -hmm. they were published very soon like in indian literature and other uh, like prestigious magazines but i myself never try translating my own poem that happened only <laughs> when i arrived in uh, at uh, university of texas at austin and then i had this student uh, shamala was like my collaborator in this book <laughs> she was actually my student uh, like 15 years back uh she's now very uh, popular american poet here published like seven volumes of poetry in english and then she started learning telugu with me uh... and then one one day i gave a reading on campus uh, I, i read my telugu poem and then she kind of why don't we translate your poems rather than we translate all the stuff all the time then let us try your own poetry <laughs> then we just started working on it right that is actually i felt very good working with her because she's poet by herself and then she has this wonderful sense of music and mm -hmm. rhythm mm -hmm. and then how they work in a language so that kind of helped me so much to engage with uh, like uh, this different language for me still right as even though i've been here for several years english is still like my, not my language so she made me realize the importance and power and music of this language so that actually like well, okay yeah, let us <laughs> uh, start working on it and then we did it very very like relaxed mode and very slow and then so in telugu Uh, last year actually my complete volume came out uh, that is actually 800 pages in telugu um but we selected only 25 pieces okay yeah it's kind of it's a very careful selection right right yeah what's what was the process that went into the selection from of like your repertoire of poems because i know there's two sections in the poems um like it's kind of divided into part one and part two um mm -hmm. so was there um was there a particular process in which you and sharmila decided to include certain poems or translate certain poems um actually um when we were working together uh there was no particular process we mm -hmm. just okay we just started this <laughs> like a fun activity <laughs> we never kind of imagined that oh this is going to be published or something else <laughs> so mm -hmm. we just like for this as uh, like uh, after finishing the classes okay let us read some poem mm -hmm. and then that is how we used to end the class and then like then okay let us start the <laughs> translating each stanza and then and then it took a lot of time Mm. so so process i don't think uh, we had any uh like deliberate uh process it is very like uh even the selection of poems actually like because at that point uh my like uh, my entire collections like uh was scattered i had like uh, in my library so i had no like uh, volume of poems in my office and then so we used to pick up whatever we found on the, online or, or like on my computer and then go to each poem and then read to each other so so we basically thought okay uh, later when we kind of uh, started gathering all these translations uh, then okay there is a kind of uh, link uh, between like uh, in all these poems so that the three parts of this uh, collection is basically like it's not like it's just uh, like a very random kind of uh, division uh, 
but maybe uh, we they, we know we don't know there might be something that is silently working back of this process but uh, in, in there is no deliberate kind of process it's just very random selection and uh, that is just like uh, very like we just started because i told you it's fun and yeah. then something it became like <laughs> serious matter later on yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Shamala has a, a piece at the end, um, you know, there's a few essays at the end of the po poetry collections that are fantastic. Um, so she has a bit on the translating component and um, David Shulman, also another leading scholar does as well. So I think both of those essays also really wonderfully address the issue of translation, which is like such an important topic. Um, and really of like the importance of the work that the Telugu is doing. Um, and you're also looking that you grew up speaking Hindi and Urdu or like I, I was reading somewhere and that so even Telugu isn't your primary language um, that you were you know working in and so then now I'm hearing that you're writing in English you're writing in Telugu you're also being exposed to um, you know you're speaking in Hindu Urdu and then you're exposed to Arabic through kind of chronic traditions and, and there's also a lot of um, vocation of like Persian ghazals and like other Sufi literary traditions from Urdu as well. So just the like the fantastic play and like engagement with all of these languages like really just blows my mind up, Sar. <laughs> like amazing. Um, and I think both David and Shamala really kind of are getting at that and adding on the dimension of translation on top of it. Cause like that, as you said, is a whole other enterprise as well, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So David is like a professional translator. So he knows the secrets of this trade. Yeah. And then uh, this is, for us, this is like a new thing. And then, but of course, I like translated a few things uh, from Telugu to English and English to Telugu, but they are very kind of limited. So I, I, I did translation only for the purpose of my courses. Right. So whenever right. I teach uh, some South Asia class, I just uh, made it a point to have something, a poem or a short story in the reading. So, and then my translation activity is confined to very classroom kind of, uh, it's basically classroom activity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but David and uh, David particularly is like, very senior and uh, very experienced translator and uh, I'm so lucky to have his words in this collection. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and partly because David is also engaging with multiple languages. I know him kind of from Tamil studies and so right. like knowing him from that and the way he is able to pick up the musicality of Telugu, I thought was really beautiful. Um, just welcoming you to be with the sounds, even if you don't are not a Telugu speaker. Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about the form and some of the linguistic contacts, I wonder if we could get into the themes. And just, you know, beautiful, amazing themes that are being evoked throughout. There's, you know, obviously the social and political context of caste and religion and politics. There's a lot of environmental themes I notice, especially of the, you know, dryness to water or the stream welcoming you just, you know, and so I could really see that that's you're coming from your own life experiences and your village context, right? Um, right beautiful ritual context as well, uh, especially of Islam, Sufism, kind of blending of all these re different religious traditions that you were exposed to. Um, so I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about it and maybe we could start by, can I ask you to read a poem, maybe in Telugu, and then we could then maybe have a conversation about it. Um, I thought it would be good for all of us to hear it in Telugu first. Yes, uh, so actually, I actually want to read uh, the very uh, poem that has this evening with a Sufi uh, in Telugu. In Telugu, it is the same title, like Sufi Sayantram. Yemaindo a masina topi, pant to jebulonchi, kachif mukatisi, talakuchutano, jutu, julu vidlincha kodadu. Samahadi chutu, vigusukuna talupulu. ఇంకా తెరుచుకోలేదు ఎదురు చూపులు అసర్కోసం అజా పిలుపుతో పావురాలు ఆకాశం గూటిలోకి రెక్కలెగరేశాయి 
పుట్టింటికి చేరుకున్న ఆనందం వాటికి చానాళ్ళకి అసర్ నమాజ్ అయ్యింది వందేళ్ల క్రితం కన్ను మూసే ఆ రాళ్లలోంచి మళ్ళీ కళ్ళు తెరుచుకుంటున్న ఆ సూఫీ మునిది కప్పుకున్న చాదర్లోంచి ఆయన దేహంలోకి చూశాను నా దేహాన్నంతా వంపి ఆయనని కళ్ళకి అద్దుకున్నాను దువా చదువుతూ మూతపడిన రెండు కళ్ళు రెండు నీటి చుక్కలై ఆయన చాదరపైన వాలాయి అవి రెండు పక్షులై టపటపా శబ్దం చేసుకుంటూ వెళ్ళాయి ఎటో బయటికి రాలేకపోయాను ఆయనలోంచి ఒక పాతకాలపు అరబీ పుస్తకం ఏ కాస్త మోటుగా తాకినా చిరిగిపోతుందేమో నన్నంత భయంగా తెరిచినట్టు ఆయన జ్ఞాపకాల్లోకి మెల్లిగా వెళ్ళాను ఈ యాత్రకి అర్థం ఏమిటి బయటికి అడుగు పెట్టానో లేదో ఒక పక్షుల సమూహంలో ఏదో పేలిన శబ్దం అందరూ పారిపోతున్నారు ఎవరూ కనిపించడం లేదు కత్తులు తప్ప ఏమీ కనిపించడం లేదు కత్తులు తప్ప ఏమీ వినిపించడం లేదు కొసప్రాణం అరుపులు తప్ప మళ్ళీ లోపలికి పరిగెత్తాను అక్కడా నిశ్శబ్దం ఒక పక్షి మాత్రం నెత్తుటి రెక్కతో దర్గా రాయి మీద ఏదో రాస్తోంది చాదర్లోకి ముక్కు దూర్చి వెక్కి వెక్కి ఏడుస్తున్నట్టుగా ఉంది ఎక్కడికి వెళ్ళాలిక నా లోపల ఒక సమాధి తవ్వుకుంటున్నాను Did you want me to read the English version or did yeah, you want please. to? Yes, yeah. Go ahead. I want to listen from your voice. <laughs> oh, it's so sweet. I'm reading with the Sufi. I'll never know the fate of my worn-out cap. I took a handkerchief from my pocket and tied it on my head. It's not right for the human mane to sway. The doors tightened on the still-closed grave waiting for evening prayer. When the call sounded... the sparrows flung in joy and reached home after the evening prayer i knew the body of the sufi by the embroidered cloth that covered him for many hundred years i bent down sorry i bent my body down to his feet reciting verses two eyes changed to two tears that shone on that on the embroidered cloth the tears changed to two sparrows sparrows flung up into nowhere I had gone somewhere inside him I couldn't come out His memory is like a worn Arabic text I'm afraid to open afraid I'll tear it but once I made a pilgrimage there How can this make sense As I was leaving the shrine something exploded into a cloud of sparrows then a flurry of severed wings Everyone was running here and there screaming I ran into the shrine again into the shrine's pure silence Now I watch a sparrow with its bleeding beak writing something on the grave translating its pain Where will I go now there is a grave to dig within me Thank you <laughs> It's such a beautiful beautiful poem um Can I so in the in the book it says that it's in memory of Ali Gujarati whose grave was demolished during the riots in um Gujarat in 2002. So did you want to tell us a little bit about the context of this stunning poem? That was a, one of the bitter experiences uh and growing up uh, so Ali Gujarati I think uh, he actually grew up in Hyderabad Deccan. He later migrated to North India and then um this uh shrine was built for him there and then there in the during the riots uh, the hindu nationalists uh, they tore it down mm-hmm. and then i kind of started thinking about so this entire life and work of wali gujarati mm-hmm. but of course uh, there is a pain there because the migration of uh, wali to gujarat kind of uh, made uh, there is there is a pain there okay there is a loss of deccani identity and then because after that he became something else he kind of started using standardized urdu and then totally ignored this side of 
that is what I heard, but I am not sure. I totally, uh, I actually don't know much about his entire literary work, but to the extent I heard, so this kind of Deccani uh, people still consider it as a loss. And then that kind of um, act in 2002, I, I saw it more as a symbolic uh, act, like uh, killing not just one Urdu Ghazal poet, but also killing the entire culture, killing one region, killing one language, so killing one kind of idiom. So this poem actually, I think, came out of that poem, Pain, basically. So the entire imagery, of course, I tried to use a lot of Sufi kind of uh, material imagery, particularly in this poem. Uh, but the poem actually uh, travels from this materiality to spirituality eventually. So I actually, this is my own kind of uh, travel. It's like in my own pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is how actually, uh, even though I wrote like several poems even before that, uh, but uh, I think Sufi imagery kind of not that specific. Mm -hmm. It's more like uh, Islamic uh, kind of uh, imagery because I grew up studying uh, the Quran and the Islamic uh, texts and then uh, I grew up basically like a kind of uh, practitioner of um, Islam. And then, of course, there are a lot of <laughs> variations in this kind of practice. Uh, a lot of like sometimes I was like, okay, not that happy with some of my practices, but I, I can't. It's like it's all part of like experience. So this poem actually like a shift in the making of my personality it also not as a just as a person but also like a scholar and also a writer right right um there's just so many layers and especially as i'm hearing you talk about your journey with the poem um just the contrasting of this political and like social and real material violence with the actual sufi stages of like mm -hmm. annihilation i was really kind of profoundly moved by it. And the last lines that ultimately you have to find the grave is within you, like just, you know, that point. So mm -hmm. I think the mirroring of the journey, but also the materiality to the spiritual, as you say, it's just so powerful in this poem. Um, but I have to say that it's probably one of my favorites um, in the collection. Um, and I'm yes, I'm glad I got to hear it in Telugu. And Telugu and Tamil have also similar resonances. So there, I felt like I didn't understand all of it, but I felt like I got right. some. Too. So I really appreciated that as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Another uh, theme or like, you know, presence that I felt throughout the book was the, the figure of the mother, um, you know, and I know there is a beautiful picture of you and your mother at the back of the book. And there's also a powerful poem called The Mother's Hand, Mother's Hand as well which is also just, you know, very beautiful. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the imagery of the mother. I mean, is this like, I mean, obviously there's the real figure for you, but is it also doing other work in, in your collection and your poetry as well? Yes, yes. Uh, it's not just imagery, but uh, because it's beyond that uh, literary device. So mother is a living text for me throughout my life. I actually took so much from her. I don't know whether I could give anything back or not. It's not easy to give something back to mother. <laughs> so, but uh, everything that I learned, whether it is uh, like Islamic uh, religious uh, learning or like non-Islamic aspects, uh, they are all basically from my mother. So she uh, she was very kind of very disciplined, <laughs> and then like uh, very perfect namazi and five times prayer, and then never missed a single prayer. Uh, I actually like not that particular discipline when it comes to namaz. <laughs> yeah. In Telugu, we have this saying that oh, it is uh, only we are Friday Muslims. <laughs> so, <laughs> only yeah. two Muslims. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so that is a kind of person me. But um, she was like, but she was not just religious because of her background, because her family was like a big part of communist party activism 
in late 40s and 50s. And then he has this wonderful blend of like uh, religious knowledge and also social knowledge. So that helped me so much to engage with different aspects of life. But anything, even now, whenever I write something, uh, whether it is like a scholarly piece or some creative piece, I always go back to my mother and then remember her. So that remembrance actually kind of gives me lots of energy. So I take like a lot of energy. It's like a very spiritual kind of uh, connection in a way. Uh, and then also being a wonderful person, very friendly, never cared about any like differences, disparities or discrimination. There is like, she's very, she was very like disciplined Muslim, but she was also very friendly with everyone in the village and then we moved to city later on but even there she kind of developed like wonderful relationships with the community both muslim community and then also hindus so that way her personality remains kind of an ideal she kind of provided me a model to how to lead a life when even when respecting the differences. So she's like symbol of so many things for me. It's not just motherly love, it's also so many other things uh, that I, I later kind of tried to like uh, utilize in my scholarly and works and also my uh, creative writing. Mm -hmm. So like I, even in my short fiction too, you find yeah, return to mother. Mm. There is also a very popular story written in the same time that I was writing this Sufi evening with a Sufi poem, Gorima. Means Gorima means white mother. So in in our uh, village, uh, so the villagers usually used to call well-learned Muslim women white mother. <laughs> So white actually <laughs> becomes a symbol of learning in that context. Uh, it's not like, it's like, there is nothing like racism or anything there. <laughs> it's just uh, uh, that kind of very interesting color kind of uh, imagination for me. How people could imagine, how people could uh, like <laughs> uh, connect whiteness with this intellectual like strength and knowledge so but uh but it's a very popular kind of term and mm -hmm. then i when i published a story with the title it's a good discussion about that okay this not just about the idea of mother but also the symbols and metaphors and then cultural practices and then uh like social practices around this idea of motherhood mm -hmm. yeah that's it's beautiful, and and I do love the the picture of you and your mom at the at the end of the book. It's it's a beautiful picture. <laughs> um, um. So another, as you're talking about like the idea of the mother, um, one of the things that I I came to mind interestingly enough is that um, Charon um Budramurthy, who's a famous uh, Tamil, you know, Sri Lankan right. Tamil, um Canadian poet as well, and has a beautiful piece of reflection on your work. Um, and he kind of also draws these parallels from his context as well in Sri Lanka and civil war. So there's like a lot of themes of, of exile and loss and grief and violence that are being shared across the topographies, the diverse topographies. Right. And one of the things he brings up is this idea of counter archives. And as you're talking about your mother, I all of a sudden was just struck by this idea of how the motherly figure is, becomes a counter archive, you know, to interrupt kind of the archives of violence, the archives of post partition, the archive of, you know, you know, we've just heard the story about a Sufi shrine being destroyed, you know what I mean? So, so I wonder, like, I don't know if there's a question here, but I'm just like really thinking about counter archives. And if you think about your work, 
I mean, your work is being read as counter archives by these other brilliant poets, you know, um, as interruptions and preservations of memories. And one of the memories is your mother or the, you know, the image of the mother. But I, is, is that something that you're thinking about a lot in your poems as, as doing that type of work? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm not sure about uh, when uh, it was working, when I was <laughs> writing a poem, but uh, maybe every poet at some point actually produces this beautiful repository of counter-archives, right? So it might be uh, his relation, his or her relationships with the uh, with uh, everyday figures in his life, in his or her life. Um, because that's why I said uh, mother is a living text. Uh, so they're not just people they are teaching us something. They are giving us something. They are telling stories. They are talking about life. They are trying to produce this entire repertoire of ethical communication. Mm-hmm. So that sometimes it comes from religious knowledge. Some sometimes it comes from social awareness. So, but mostly it's it's so connected to this lot of like uh, emotional balance. So we actually need as a scholar also. I feel that uh, that's what I tried to do in my previous work, uh, and also that is what I'm trying to do in my forthcoming book on Hyderabadi Muslims and their histories. Basically, most of material for this work come um, say so we can treat them as like consider them as like counter archives because not just partition but any kind of violence or migration displacement and the tensions between home and then uh being away from home we as far as muslim community is concerned we don't have sufficient evidence. So we don't have sufficient literature. We don't have sufficient oral histories. But most importantly, the entire idea of Muslimness and its production in the public culture, it is totally ignored by the mainstream historiography. So... It's, it's a need of the hour, particularly this is a broken world. So we don't have enough sources to make us like connect with the society and the other communities. So in such an environment, we should create, particularly the, the writers and the scholars coming from these marginalized sections, they should create their own archives. So whatever name we can give like to this kind of archive, but it is, I feel it's like ongoing process. And this is what is happening in everywhere else, like in the David Shulman's case, it might be in Palestina or in Charan's Rudramurthy's case, it might be Sri Lanka Tamils, or like being away from home, it might be me being a um, Telugu Muslim living in USA and then Tamil living in Canada for Cheran. So it's kind of like there is a connection in all these experiences, right? So we need to value and respect these connections. And then that way we can establish or we can give a framework to this um, new, um, what we can call as a, like a, I would say it's a discipline, (laughs) like uh, counter archives. Um, But my archives is basically like comes from my own, like uh, life stories, oral histories. And then of course in Hyderabadi Muslim uh, book that is, that will be out soon from the Cambridge. uh, It's it's mostly, it's a combination of oral histories and literary writings. So I, I kind of <laughs> try to juxtapose both of them. So it's, I, I feel it's it's like even in my classroom, I always do this, like how do we juxtapose these moral histories with the written materials? Mm-hmm. 
I, I feel it's very important, like uh, a skill to learn, to be able to connect your own experiences and then written materials. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the exercises, assignments I use in my courses as well. Um, can you speak a little bit more about like the pedagogical aspect, like how you do this in your classes, like what courses you're teaching, like how might somebody be able to use some of the poems that are in this book? Like I'm thinking about how I would be able to use, you know, the evening with the Sufi poem and like a, in a, in a section on Sufism, you know, and how would I introduce it or how would I do that work? Obviously, I'm not a translation scholar. Um, so <laughs> I can't approach it from that angle. But I think, you know, anybody who's teaching courses on South Asia or, you know, Islam, um, could obviously do some of this work. So how would we do that? Uh, there are two ways, uh, Shobhana. I think one is uh, because when we are teaching courses on Islam, so we actually need, even if it is like introduction to Islam, like very broad kind of survey of like Islam, we need something from local Islam. Mm -hmm. So where do we get this? So we always use sometimes to like bring that energy to the classroom. Some some poems from Rumi, Hafez, or Shadi, or someone else. But uh, why should we always use Rumi and Hafez? Let us bring some very local, extremely local poem into the classroom, and then let the students reflect on it even if it is a simple poem or a simple story or fable. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, I, I experimented this with, uh, like, like even when I was teaching at uh, University of Texas at Austin, so where I taught several courses on Islam and um, particularly like pilgrimage networks in Islam was like one of my popular courses uh, there. And... Um, this poem actually actually started uh, working on this poem when I was teaching that class. Why we should have something on Sufi pilgrimage? <laughs> so, and then actually, okay, let us use this poem in the classroom and see how students would respond to it. And luckily, that worked out very well <laughs> in that class because <laughs> directly connecting the you know, Sufism pilgrimage and then. Uh, like uh, it very kind of uh, devices. So we have this trajectory that helps the students to see this multiple dimensions of Sufism, right? So, and then also in Islam courses as well, particularly like I never taught the introduction to Islam, uh, but basically I, ta I teach uh, uh, seminar level senior uh, undergrad courses. So like religion and resistance uh, and then uh, devotions new market is one of my <laughs> popular courses here at uh, University of Pennsylvania. So I actually use some pieces in that uh, devotions new market because where we were talking about this urbanity, modernity and then uh, the making of new uh, producing a new market for devotionalism. <laughs> like different uh, of devotion, whether it is Hinduism, Islam or Christianity, it's a very broad kind of course. Uh, but there also I experimented with two or three poems. So whenever students feel like tired of my lecturing, <laughs> and then like, they have these like, uh, assignments, like huge assignments, midterm and then before final exams, uh, that week I actually used to bring something like refreshing, relaxing material. And then uh, rather than giving an, a like 100 pages reading, <laughs> I go to the classroom with this simple poem, 15 to 20 lines poem, and then ask them to recite it and then do the group activity. <laughs> And then each one, I, I don't do any lecturing that day. So it's great to you. Yeah. They do lecturing all the time. Yeah. All the day. So, yeah. so they talk about this. When I kind of like um, those reflections are really valuable. So let them 
talk about it rather than me talking about it and then we like uh, giving like everything to their hands and then so and also i tried with uh, because i also teach uh, courses on this uh, partition sometimes but uh, it's not my focus is not like a literary kind of approach is these these are basically religious studies courses so uh, so even though there are religious studies courses i always realize that if you have something like some creative piece sometimes uh biogra- autobiographical pieces memoirs personal essays they are also like uh, very useful mm. so students actually like they, that gives them lot of if you use a creative piece is there's a lot of space there to students to reflect on so i'm not going to provide any materials to understand those poems even this poem i has introduced i just i they don't even know that was written in telugu first right i just presented it as a original english poem and they don't even know i wrote the poem so i just it's kind of surprise <laughs> the class <laughs> so, so so those kind of experiments uh, like uh, even now when i look at the reflections uh, like a uh, uh, surveys from this courses i whenever i read the comments so students even like uh, at, even at the end of the semester they don't even know those poems were written by me uh, i <laughs> so, love that <laughs> so everything surprised okay yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> that's so awesome that's also yeah. very easy of you but that's amazing yeah, yeah. i so would I like to play tricks with the such things pardon I kind of played tricks with students sometimes. <laughs> yeah, 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 I love it. I I would love to be in one of your classes to have these experiences, but I love the idea that students should experience the poems and that experience should lead to like this knowledge base that they should, you know, figure out, right? And they have the capacity to do so. You're just giving them space to do that. Um and it's fun. Like you're presenting it in a very fun way and I and I love that. That's amazing. I <laughs> I love all of it. Um I'm mindful of the time and I don't know, did you want to share one more poetry before we close up or what do you think um we could do, either do it in english or telugu is there like a poem that you really like or i'm sure um uh yes yes um one thing that i wanted to mention about pedagogy earlier uh, is actually this is a continuation to the same question so one thing that we need to make students realize like a different uh, manifestations of islam right like uh, one thing one big thing for every student who comes to my classes is like how do you differentiate islam and uh, sufism so so that i have like different other sources when i teach the class but here for this interview i actually i already read uh, evening with a sufi with all that uh, sufi background but i i read now one poem that has this islamic background mm. uh, that's qibla uh, some mm. page 57 in the book um, just one direction for me a belly turned deep into itself in which i obscure my body feet hands and everything for a long time how many days nights and early dawns have i jumped into this belly running in a single direction flown down a deep sky how many times did i weave and fell deep into it despite all my choice in the world i lived still in the inner eye shut under the eyelids in your meditation i lived in one dream for a long time if each arm is a wound how many arms have i seen since my childhood arms meet at an instant and then disassemble how many dreams entered in a lifetime's lids the hibla points us down a river of blood where the quartered arms smell of rot marks of chains on the body 
Early dawn, was a time, I dream over and over that arms can erase, as if arms can erase this triangle of hatred. This is just uh, nothing to do with uh, Sufism. It's just uh, some very Muslim expression. Yeah. And an intense one, again, the contrasting between kind of a religious ritual and kind of a right. political context of violence. And I think that's what all of your poems are doing is just like bringing these multiple experiences and really juxtaposing them in like shocking and provocative ways mm-hmm. and really invite and require pause, right? Um, so what, you know, immense, immense gratitude for this wonderful collection and all the work that you've done. Um, before I let you go, I mean, are there, is there, you've mentioned that you're working on a book on Hyderabadi Sufis or Hyderabad Islam. I mean, can you, um, what are you working on these days or what can we expect from you next? Okay. Uh, this is totally a different work, uh, Shavana. It's not uh, much about, uh, like, uh, not like my previous work. Uh, it's uh, also not about Sufism. Maybe at some point I would take up that Hyderabadi Sufis. That's a great project, though. <laughs> so much material out there. <laughs> but this book is about, you know, 1948 police action in Hyderabad when Nizam of Hyderabad was uh, persistent and then he don't want to join the government, Union Government of India. And the Union Government of India forced the Nizam to surrender. And then there was like five days uh, battle between Union Government and then Hyderabad, princely state. Uh, we also have like uh, official documentation right now. It's recently released. Uh, so according to that report, 50,000 Muslims were killed. Some thousands migrated to Pakistan or other, other parts of the world. So my work is basically like uh, not about violence or trauma. But I, I kind of started, when I started reflecting on, like, meeting the people who witnessed this anti-trauma and violence, and then started reading the materials, uh, particularly fiction, poetry, and then autobiographical pieces, memoirs, I, I started realizing that it's people, of course, they are so concerned about violence, they lost families, friends, they kind of even my own family, we lost so many people, like they migrated to other parts of the world. Uh, but what I saw, there is a quest, a search for Muslim identity out of this violence and trauma. So that is where I started uh, kind of, I, I also, from my oral histories, I also documented people saying uh, there was a rise of new Muslim, Naya Musliman in Hyderabadi context. So I started asking myself, what is this new Muslim? How do we understand this new Muslim? What makes him new? So that kind of question led me to do a lot of research. It's kind of more than 10 years of research. As soon as I finished my Mahoram, the Festival of Peace work uh, in 2013, actually I started the work on Hyderabadi Muslims the same time. But of course, I kind of very relaxed, like <laughs> uh, scholar. Like I don't like take that much stress. <laughs> so I actually, because in between, I do a lot of stuff, like uh, writing in Telugu, writing columns, and then all this stuff in Telugu. So it's kind of a very slow journey. Uh, but uh, luckily, Cambridge uh, like accepted that uh, in its history. Uh, kind of uh, selection and then is coming out. I basically argued how Hyderabadi Muslims produced a new discourse, whether it is about language, religion, or gender, or like reformism. So many things were there between. It's just just happened in like uh, late forties. This entire history of Hyderabad between 1940s and 50s. So, but it's all based on literary evidence and oral histories. So uh, it's quite it's, it's quite interesting kind of methodology for me, right? I don't know how um, academic world is going to accept this methodology, but I, I just wanted to do it in 
did it. <laughs> uh, hopefully, it would be out very soon. Uh, not sure about their uh, timeline, but uh, now I'm waiting for the proof copy from the press. Oh, fantastic. So it's like in the final stages. I'm sure it'll be amazing. And I'm very excited to read it once it's out. Um, but this has been so fun, Afsar. I'm a huge fan of your work and I love all the things that you do. And I um, really appreciate it. And I think this is the first time we've connected officially, even though I know of you and your scholarship. Um, but it's been actually really wonderful to connect with you about poetry. Um, this has been like so insightful and really just a, um, a gift to sit with your poems and like engage with them and read such um, kind of really stunning and insightful and sharp, sharp poetry that really was inspiring. So thank you so much for connecting with me. Um, congratulations on the book. I hope everybody gets Evening with the Sufi selected poems. Um, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much Shabla, for this beautiful conversation and looking forward to continue the conversation later. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And that was my conversation with Afsar Muhammad. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I wish you all the best. Um, and I hope you'll have join us again next time. Bye.